The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger. Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 147th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we are going to the northeast on this episode, to Oregon, and we are going to be checking out the Shanghai Tunnels. This is a location that was suggested to us by three of our listeners, Denise. See Laurel Boaz, Lisa Linderman, and Michelle Vaughn. Yes, so we figure three, we better do it. (laughs) No kidding. And on this episode, we also have the second installment of Spectral Edition by Tim Prassel. Before we bring that to you, we'd love to have you check out our website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And we did get some emails. You want to share some of those, Denise? I absolutely do. The first one comes from Sandy Casaneri. I just discovered your show while searching for history podcast. I am so thrilled you are out there because you are covering my two favorite subjects, history and the paranormal. The wedding of the two together is genius. I have a lot of catching up to do, but you are with me every night as I go on my evening walk. Hearing your voices is comforting and entertaining as I go on my walks alone, away from the craziness of the day. I grew up in eastern Massachusetts and now live in Connecticut and love the lore of our New England. I love stories about Boston and have gone on several ghost tours in the area. I really appreciate your podcast and look forward to hearing more. Many thanks. 
April Peterson shared with us in the Spooktacular crew, I was re-listening to episode 100 and looked up the moment Nodity featured on it of Palisades, Nevada, where the town residents staged robberies and shootouts in the 1870s to scare the people on the trains that came through. Turns out the remains of the town are less than half an hour from where I live, so my family and I took a quick trip out to take pictures. Not much is left, but what I've been able to look up, it's mostly the storage root cellars left that I got pictures of. The steps are the remains of the courthouse. A train even happened to go by while we were there. And what we did is we added those pictures to the show notes for episode 100. So if you go back and look at those over on the blog, you'll be able to check out those pictures. They're pretty cool and a little bit haunting. Anything that comes from a ghost town is kind of that way. And we also heard from Christopher Klimovitz. A couple of months ago, I contacted you both about possible ideas for your wonderful podcast. I greatly appreciate the kind words from your previous email. Moreover, I remember a few episodes ago that you mentioned that you will have a Halloween-related show about the Hoa Basai Forest. I look forward to that. I just arrived back in Albania after a couple-week vacation to Romania. Whilst in Romania, I visited the famous Hunadora Castle, which is also known as the Castlevu Corvinilor and would also like to suggest it for a future program, or even an entire Romania-dedicated program. There are plenty of ghost stories about the castle, including the famous Vlad Dracula. If I can be of any help for research, I would gladly do so. I speak Romanian, have extensive knowledge of the Romanian and Balkans history slash folklore, and when not home in America, I've spent significant time working and studying there, as well as most of Eastern Europe. As always, great work and research putting together the podcast. Please find attached a few photos of the castle. And we do have those pictures up in the show notes for today's episode, if you want to check those out. It's always nice to have somebody who actually knows the language from a certain area. Yes, and probably pronounces it way better than my feeble attempts. <laughs> <laughs> I think you did pretty good. Well, thank you. Rick Kinnett sent us an email as well. Hi, Diane and Denise. Couldn't resist commenting on your recent moment oddity talk on Rookwood Necropolis, my favorite graveyard and its funeral trains. Some years ago, during a trip to Sydney, I set aside a whole day to prowl around Rookwood. Apart from a few photos, my one souvenir of that visit was a book I bought at the cemetery office, the Sleeping City, produced by a group of volunteer genealogists who spent probably more than a month of Sundays transcribing all the grave inscriptions into a computer database. The project must have been, if you'll excuse the phrase, monumental, as sections of this massive cemetery are now overgrown with bushes and trees, and many of the older headstones are either badly worn or fallen over. Rookwood was originally designed as a garden cemetery, but nowadays shows many signs of sad neglect. There were four cemetery stations within Rookwood itself. Numbers 2, 3, and 4 were constructed mostly of wood and were demolished after the funeral train service ceased in 1948. Cemetery station number one, however, was a church-like Gothic structure made of sandstone. In 1957, it was dismantled and transported to Canberra, Australia's capital city, 286 kilometers to the southwest, and rebuilt as All Saints Church. The only trace of the railway line within Rookwood Cemetery today is the long curving line of comparatively new graves between the older stones, showing where the tracks used to run. The mortuary station in Sydney itself, where the funeral train started from, still remains. A sandstone structure of Gothic design, it is seldom used for anything these days. In 1986, it became the site of a pancake eatery called the Magic Mortuary. Diners would sit in four train carriages parked at the platform. The restaurant closed three years later, and with a name like Magic Mortuary, I'm surprised it lasted that long. <laughs> Darn it, because I would have loved to gone. And then he sent me an update after I responded to him. We do have the picture of that cemetery station one, the way it looks now is the church, up with that moment oddity, which I believe it was the Whitney episode that we did that one. And he said, last email I said there was no longer 
any trace of the railway line within Rookwood Cemetery, but just now I saw a YouTube video taken in Rookwood, and I see I spoke too soon. The foundations of the Sandstone Cemetery Station remain. He said he must have missed that on his tour back in the 90s, and the book that he got didn't mention that. Well, thank you for sending us that information, Rick. We greatly appreciate that. And just so everybody knows, we went out to St. Augustine and we put together a video that is a walking ghost tour of Cordova Street there. It's up on our YouTube channel. In order to get there, you just go to our website and at the very top at the right, there's a bunch of little buttons there. You just push the YouTube one. It'll take you right to our YouTube channel where you can watch it. We had a lot of fun with that. Obviously, we're not professional videographers. (laughs) Definitely not professional videographers. But we take you to a lot of our favorite spots along that route and let you know all the haunting and history about some particular locations there. So you'll probably enjoy that. Nathan Teeter was the one who won our exclusive t-shirt for this month. So congratulations to you, Nathan. Yes, congratulations. Want to remind you guys that I do have an article that went up over at entwinedpodcast.com. If you look under their news tab, you should find it there. I also will put the link in the show notes or the description that goes with this show so that you can find that more easily. Would love to know your comments about what you think about that article. We also broke some download records around here, Denise. Last month, we had over 86,000 downloads. That blows my mind. (laughs) The best amount of downloads we had in any previous month was back in March at 71,000. Wow. So thank you to the listeners. That's all you. And a couple days ago, we had our top daily downloads and that was 5,300 in one day. Oh, geez. That's a lot. And we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Teresa. Hey, Teresa. Kim. Hi, Kim. Robin. Hey, Robin. Karen. Hey, Karen. And Peggy. Hi, Peggy. All right, Denise, are you ready to head on down the Shanghai Tunnels? Yes, I am. History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. And This Moment in Oddity was suggested to us by Corbin, who is one of our listeners' sons. News broke last week out of Indonesia about a very unique man. He is incredibly frail, and the name on his identity card reads Mabagatho. That identity card also identifies his date of birth. Unbelievably, the card states that Gotho was born December 31st, 1870. That's right, Gotho is 145 years old. He has outlived all 10 of his siblings, four wives, and his children. He has reached a point where his only desire is to die, and he's been preparing for that for 24 years. If his age can be confirmed, it would mean that he would hold the world record for the oldest human recorded in our present era. That record is currently held by Jeanne Calment, a French woman who died in 1997 at the age of 122. When asked what his secret to longevity was, 
Gothel remarked that it was patience. Such an answer coming from a man who has wished and prepared for death for over two decades seemed rather ironic, and the fact that he has lived so long certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This Day in History. On this day, September 6th in 1901, United States President William McKinley is shot and mortally wounded. President McKinley was attending the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, and he was shaking hands with the public inside the Temple of Music on that fateful day in 1901. The president had been re-elected for a second term in 1900, and he was a popular president because he liked to meet with the public. One member of that public waiting to meet President McKinley was Leon Shklaskov. Shklaskov had lost his job during the Panic of 1893, and he was very bitter. He had turned to anarchism, and one goal of the political philosophy was to kill political leaders at that time. Shlaskov shot the president when he reached to shake his hand. The bullet entered his abdomen. The president was rushed for medical care, but no one was able to find the bullet in his body, and soon gangrene took hold. President McKinley died on September 13th. Shklaskov was sentenced to death, and he met his end in the electric chair. President McKinley was the third president to be assassinated, and it was his death that finally got Congress to charge the Secret Service with the duty of protecting the president. You're listening to History Goes Bump. Portland, Oregon was known in Victorian times as the City of Roses, and it has retained that nickname for over a century. The Portland Underground is known more readily as the Shanghai Tunnels. These tunnels that snake through what is today Old Town and Chinatown were used for practical business purposes, but they also serve as the seedy side of things in the city. Some parts of these tunnels can still be accessed today, and they reveal a dark, cobweb maze that one would not want to enter without a strong flashlight and a good guide. Spirits are reputed to lurk here. Is it because men and women were carried off for human slavery operations through these tunnels? Was it the era of prohibition that has led to spectral activity? Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Shanghai Tunnels. And another kind of fun fact about Portland, Oregon, is that their popular slogan for them is to keep Portland weird. You've actually been to Portland, haven't you, Denise? I definitely have. I have a couple times. I've never been there. Oh, it's a beautiful city. Portland, Oregon, early in its beginning, was inhabited by the Chinook tribe. They were foragers and fishermen, and it was this tribe that Lewis and Clark encountered on their expedition in 1805. The Chinookian people practiced flatboarding, which is a process that would flatten the back of the skull. This would be started when a baby was three months old and continued until one year of age. The deformed skull was a sign of a higher social standing. For this reason, white explorers referred to them as flathead Indians. The Oregon Trail soon brought settlers to the area, and the Chinook were pushed into a smaller region. The massive amounts of trees made Portland a lumber town. And the proximity it had to the Columbia River and the Willamette River gave it a foothold in shipping. Settlers flocked from the East Coast. Portland came by its name in a unique way. Believe it or not, it came down to the flip of a penny. 
Two men, Maine merchant Francis Pettigrove and Massachusetts lawyer Asa Lovejoy, flipped a penny to decide if the town would be called Portland or Boston after the respective hometowns. Portland was incorporated in 1851 and today is Oregon's largest city. So I will be Captain Obvious. Obviously, Francis Pettigrove won. And that penny is actually in a museum. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, so it stuck around to this day. During the 19th century, the demand for able-bodied men on ships grew. The best place to recruit these men was in port cities. A practice began during this time because there were not enough men willing to go to sea. This practice was called Shanghaiing, and it took place in most major ports. Portland was one such place. Shanghaiing was, at its base, kidnapping. In most places where this happened, men would be drinking in a bar, and crimps or kidnappers would approach and offer them something else to drink. Usually this was drugged liquor. Other times, men were just knocked out or grabbed and tied up. The men would awaken to find themselves aboard a ship being ordered to work. Many would spend months at sea in servitude. Crimps were usually middlemen who would sell their victims to captains of ships. Shanghaiing had a unique twist in Portland where this occurred from the 1850s to the 1940s because there was an underground there. Can you imagine this continued on into the 1940s? Not really because it, I mean, there's still various... I guess you're right. There is sexual slavery and... And people doing the same thing now just under different situations. And even though we are mentioning that this was men in particular that this happened to, it did happen to the women as well, mostly for that sexual slavery. Like most cities in the 1800s, Portland streets were dirt, which meant that much of the time they were mud. This made it hard to transport goods in a bustling port city. A catacomb of tunnels was built beneath Portland starting in the 1870s, with many finished by 1894 after the flood in the city that year. Chinese laborers built most of the substructure. The tunnels were brick archways built between basement areas of businesses. They snaked through the north end and south end of town. This basically would connect the modern-day Chinatown to downtown Portland. In the north end of town was a bar named Laszlo's Saloon. It is today a fusion restaurant known as Hobo's, and this is where one of the main tunnels ran from. A trapdoor was located at the back of the saloon where victims were dropped down through. Their shoes were removed, and they were locked in a cell for a time. In case they woke up before they were moved to a ship that was ready to leave port, broken glass was spread on the floor, making escape difficult and leaving a trail of blood to be followed. That trap door has been tiled over at Hobo's Restaurant. Diane, I don't remember, but when we were up in Savannah, wasn't there at the Pirates Restaurant? Isn't that a very similar thing that they used to do for the pirates and the ships there as well? When I was looking up haunting information, you have a mind like a steel trap because I did not remember that from the tour. But they were talking about this particular location and the Pirates Restaurant in Savannah. Indeed, it happened there as well because that was a port city. It was just over on the other coast. This one is called Shanghaiing because most people were being taken over to China with the transport of goods, oh, okay. which is where we're getting the Shanghaiing from. So I'm not quite sure in Savannah what they would have called it because I don't think that would have been necessarily Shanghai. I'm trying to remember because they did have, but it was the pirates and like the buccaneers that did that. Yes, and you're right. And I, I, I should have remembered that I'd heard that before. So it was pirates kidnapping to take them aboard their ships to basically be pirates with them, whereas this is business. And I'm surprised you didn't remember that because we actually went down into the tunnel. Did we really? <laughs> See, this is why I don't remember a lot of this stuff. My brain is just not well, like yours. Well, you research the words and I have to experience it. That's why sometimes I have more difficulty when, when we do places that I haven't physically been to. Exactly. And that Pirate's Restaurant in Savannah is haunted as well. Yes, it is. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The main purpose of the tunnels was to connect the Willamette Riverfront to businesses in town, making the transport of goods easier. We have heard of similar tunnels in other cities, and many times these underground areas would be used for nefarious or secret purposes. They were used to carry people from gambling halls to opium dens to brothels without being seen by the public. Access would come through the basements of these various establishments. During Prohibition, the tunnels were used to run liquor. Underground speakeasies were fashioned in the tunnels, and barrels of booze were stored along the walls. Human trafficking continued until the early 1940s, when it became no longer profitable. And some of those underground tunnels that I remember is in Denver, when we were under that bar, the Blake Street Vault. Exactly. And then I think we saw some in Seattle as well when we visited there and did a tour. Well, we did the Seattle Underground there. So Seattle had an underground, so did Portland. And I believe Atlanta has one that we have not had a chance to do yet. So we need to get there. Something that's a little bit different, if I recall, because the Seattle one we did back for our honeymoon. So that was 20 some odd years ago. (laughs) More than two decades ago. Doesn't that (laughs) sound like kind of like da da da? But I seem to remember, and people who live in Seattle can correct us on this one, that was actually literally the city, and they built on top of it. Correct. So it wasn't tunnels built under the city, because remember, they would talk about climbing over the road to get to the other side in the city, but since it kept flooding and everything, they finally just built the city up. Yes. I think it was flooding, but anyway, for some reason, they built the city up, so it was the city under the city. You're right. The ease with which Shanghaiing could be practiced in Portland because of the tunnels made it one of the most dangerous cities to visit, and it was considered the capital of Shanghaiing. Men would be dropped through trapdoors down into the tunnels to be scuttled off to the port, or at least that is what the legends surrounding these tunnels claim. There is no actual proof that the tunnels were used for this purpose. While it is clear that the tunnels were not specifically built for Shanghaiing, they certainly could have been quite useful and were sure that some kidnapped men and women were moved through them. Some researchers claim that number to be around 1,500 a year. And why wouldn't these tunnels be used? They are perfect for such a practice. And part of the problem that you run into when you're researching this, Denise, is that nobody knows quite for sure what was going on because there's not a lot of documentation. Obviously, this is not something that you would really put out there. I heard that it was kind of quasi okay there. And so they could have done it above board and not really gotten in trouble for it. But still, it's kidnapping, so it does make you wonder how easily you could do something like that. And this was something you had to be a little bit more sneaky about. If it was something that was well-known and being seen on the street all the time, I would think a lot of people wouldn't bother to go to the bars and drink. Exactly, which is probably why there wasn't much documentation, because when you do illegal activity or things that's frowned upon by society, you don't usually just put it out there and keep great records and write about it. Just like right now, we know that drug trafficking's out there, but we don't have a lot of written documentation about it as far as like the drug dealer saying, oh yes, and I just moved this kilo over to here or whatever. But we still know it's there whether we have the proof or not. Well, and there is a curator there, Michael P. Jones, and I saw him in a couple of videos being interviewed and he also is the man who appeared, for those of you who saw the ghost adventures featuring this location, he was the man that went down there with them. 
he seems to be the one that's uncovered the most information about this. And he had found some trap doors. The man who owns hobos says that there was a trap door there that they did tile over. And there does appear to be some cells downstairs that they can show you. So it seems like there's some proof there that something happened. It just isn't well documented. I have no doubt that these tunnels were definitely used for this kind of thing. And we already know during Prohibition, St. Augustine, they would run the rum down through tunnels into the city to get it there and stuff. So definitely tunnels were used for that kind of practice. Absolutely. The tunnels are dim and dank with cobwebs clinging to the dark corners. One can only imagine what the tunnels were like before they were finally closed off in the 1950s. Cascade Historical Society discovered the tunnels and opened up some of them and renovated them. These areas can now be toured. There are holding cells and unearthed artifacts from a bygone era in the tunnels. People reportedly died down here, either murdered or by accident. Something lurks here. Something not human and mainly unseen. Some experiences are residual and some are intelligent and violent. People excavating artifacts in the tunnel claim to have had bricks thrown at them. Paranormal investigators have set up wind chimes to indicate when a spirit passes by. This seems dubious at best since this area is under a shaking and vibrant city, but there is not supposed to be any airflow in the tunnels. Yeah, so I don't know that I would look to wind chimes. It's kind of like orb pictures as definitive proof of anything. But I suppose if it started swinging pretty heavily, that would be an indication that something hit it, unless it's having an earthquake in Portland. But I don't know that I would necessarily use that as my proof. One of the spirits reputed to be here is found beneath the former Merchant Hotel. A young prostitute had been talking to some missionaries in the early 1900s, and they told her that they wanted to rescue her from this life. Her employers discovered that she planned to leave and she was thrown down the elevator shaft. Her full-bodied apparition is seen not only in the Old Town Pizza that is located in what was the Merchant Hotel's lobby, but in the basement area connected to the tunnels. She has been seen both in black and white. So she could be Our Lady in White or Our Lady in Black. And I've heard lots of things. First of all, when you see her name, it looks to me like Nina, but I've heard it pronounced Nina. So I'm not sure exactly how her name was said, but there was a tour guide that had said that she was calling her Nina and she said that she doesn't believe that that's the ghost. Because what happened is there's the name Nina or Nina is scratched on the wall of this elevator shaft. So they think that it's kind of like Nina or Nina was here. But if you're being thrown down a shaft, you're not really writing your name, are you? I usually don't have time. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) So she says she doesn't think that that's the name of this particular spirit necessarily. Could have been any young prostitute. Again, legend. We don't have a lot of proof that this actually happened. So who knows? But there is apparently a... And maybe it's two different women, too. I don't know if they both look the same. Or she could have been there at an earlier time and scratched her name. Or ghosts have been known to do stuff in the afterlife. So she didn't necessarily do it when she fell, but maybe afterwards. That's true. Somebody who feels guilty about what they did, maybe scratched her name. Who knows? Yep. Those who died in captivity seem to remain in spirit form. They have been seen as full-bodied apparitions and felt as icy cold spots. Hulking dark figures are attributed to the crimps that ran people through the tunnels. Dark corners suddenly move as though the shadow has come to life. Some claim that these shadows have piercing red eyes. The basement of the Lotus Nightclub is home to an evil and angry male entity that is reputed to be a bartender who worked in tandem with the crimps. Employees won't go into the basement alone. Glasses are thrown and moved around, and CO2 tanks in the basement have been turned on by themselves. Glowing human-shaped forms are seen climbing upstairs out of the tunnel. 
people have heard audible voices say both stay and get out. There is no way if I worked there that I would go down into the basement to get anything. I can say from personal experience, working in a place that was reputed to be haunted, I never heard or saw anything, but all of our stock at the restaurant was kept down in the basement. That's where the liquor was kept. That's where all the food and everything. And I would never go down there alone. So maybe that's why I never saw anything. Good for you. She did not tempt the spirits. Although now that I'm more interested in that stuff, <laughs> I might just have done that. And hold her hand out like she did in the other tunnel. <laughs> Hi, I'm coming down for some tomato paste. Is there any ghosts down here? Here I come. My name's Diane. It's supposedly prostitute. Brothel used to be, so. She'd go into like Rocky Horror and she'd be like, touch me. Great. Thank you for that, Denise. One of the most frightening experiences usually happens once a year on an anniversary. Back in 1902, the Jennifer Joe was a four-masted schooner that was leaving the port in Portland. On board was a crew of 100 men that had been shanghaied. They were chained together in the hull of the boat. The ship sank in the Portland Harbor. The crew died. It is said that every year on the day of the sinking, the crew runs through the entrance of the tunnels the closest to the water. They seem to be looking for the crimps that took them and enslaved them. Several people claimed to have seen them and felt as though the group were going to run into them. Even more chilling are the claims of being touched by cold, wet hands. No, thank you. <laughs> cold hands would be bad enough and then wet too. Ooh, uh, It's like having a frog jump on you or something. Like the one that jumped on your face camping. <laughs> oh, God, that was a sight to see. <laughs> Do not remind me of that bad memory. I'd rather see a ghost. There is a wolf associated with the tunnels, which seems strange. There's a legend about a Native American man who worked on a longboat helping to turn the ships in the harbor, and he was tall and strong. A crimp wanted to capture him because he felt he could get a lot of money for him. A group of men surrounded him on the streets. Suddenly, he shapeshifted into a wolf and got down on all fours. The men ran in terror. It is said that to this day, the cry of the wolf can be heard along the riverfront. Homeless people claim to hear the call on the night air. People who have heard it are sure that it's not a dog or a coyote. The wolf has been seen in the underground. Okay, at the risk of people shooting me down and some really bad reviews, that's very interesting in light of the Twilight series. Because, no, I'm serious, because you usually don't write a place that you're not really, really familiar with. And the whole wolf pack and Jacob and the whole backstory is Native American and about kind of shape-shifting and their wolves. And so it's just, it's kind of interesting that this is Portland, Oregon. See, you'll be proud of me. I don't even remember where Twilight takes place, but it is up in Oregon. So kind of weird. Have you heard of skinwalkers? I don't know if I'm as familiar with that term. Well, this possibly could be something of that nature as well. Skinwalkers are kind of a similar entity, and it's Native American. And we've had people actually suggest that they would love to have us talk about the Skinwalker Ranch. And I'm not really sure exactly what to do with it, because I'm not sure it falls into haunting as much. So I've kind of put that on a piece of paper so that it's there, but I'm not sure about it. Well, we've done urban legends and lore, so maybe we yeah. can. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is not a story that I would not believe. There and are such things as shapeshifters. I am a believer in that. Exactly. I don't know what, so. what they are, where they come from, but I believe there is such a thing. So. Well, and maybe that kind of lore, that kind of thing happens more in the great Northwest. Sure. The practice of Shanghai was cruel and brutal. Such activity builds up strong negative emotions. How many men and women died wanting justice for what had happened to them? Were these tunnels used for shanghaiing? 
Do spirits of those who lost their lives in the tunnels still remain here? Are the Shanghai tunnels haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, I'd like to check out the city. I mean, if it's been told to keep it weird, sounds like a good place to me. Absolutely. And they have all these really great places at downtown Portland with all these markets. And there's one whole street that has all the stores that I love with like tie-dye and batik. It's very cool. Yeah, let's stay away from those. I think not. Hippie. Our next episode is going to feature the Captain William Vickery Mansion in Pennsylvania. This was suggested to us by our listener, Heather Marie. So looking forward to bringing that to you guys. And as promised, here is the second installment of the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. Welcome to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prassel. I suppose that all of the ghost reports that I've dug up are unusual, to be sure, but this one is just bizarre. I'm not, it, it starts out as sort of a, con, a conventional ghost, if there is such a thing. But then it turns into what seems like poltergeist activity. And it seems like maybe there's a living human doing something here. I really don't know where to place this one. It was published in the Fort Worth Daily Gazette on March 29th of 1887. And the title is A Lively Ghost caught in a cellar, bound hands and feet, and his mouth of clover seed. Cincinnati Inquirer, London, Ohio, March 19th. Ghosts, the devil, or some other unseen power are tearing down a house and kicking up a tremendous excitement in Darby Township, this county. About 25 years ago, a pretty girl, remembered then only as Nora, lived with a noted spiritualist and his family and became the victim of an unwise love for the gentleman's son. Early one spring morning, her body, cold in death, was found hanging from a plum tree in a deep thicket near the house. And since that time, the locality of the thicket and the little family graveyard where the girl was buried nearby have been said to be haunted by her ghost. On the same farm and near the haunted thicket now stands the neat farm dwelling of Mr. Harlan P. Wood, the scene of the present excitement. For several nights past, he has attributed the throwing of stones through his window to a man whom he some time ago discharged from his service. But the man could not be found. And all of last night and today, at short intervals, stones and brickbats have been flying through the sitting room window, sometimes being thrown outward by unseen hands. Hundreds of clear-headed people have visited the place and go away completely mystified. Constable Donahue and a deputy watched the premises last night, but made no discovery that would imply any human agency in the mysterious work. One of the rooms has stored in it a large quantity of clover seed, which is being, by unseen power, distributed about in every part of the house. And the same agency brings potatoes from a bin in the cellar and lays them down five in a pile on the sitting room floor. This forenoon, Constable Donahue went to the cellar to watch the potatoes and soon after was heard calling for help. On going down to him, his friends found him lying on the cellar floor with his hands and feet tied and his eyes and mouth stuffed with clover seed. He states that he was thrown down by unseen hands and seems to be considerably worked up by it. 
A representative of the Inquirer has just returned from the haunted house. The excitement in the neighborhood is intense. I would imagine it is. <laughs> I, I don't really know what to do with this article. It's all over the place. The only thing I can say is... You've been listening to <laughs> Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prossel. I have close to 300 of these articles. Probably not quite as strange as this one, but they come pretty close. And I post one each Wednesday on my website. The name of that website is The Merry Ghost Hunter. I hope you stop by. Thanks so much for that, Tim. And now we have a couple of reviews from over at iTunes. The first one is from Quintina K. She gave us five stars. Give it a try. You won't be sorry. Short but sweet. Thank you. And she says it's excellent. Oh, thank you. And then, Denise, we got our first review from Sweden. Excellent. This is from Misty Madness. Loving it. Five stars. Thank you for making my work days go by faster with your show. I stumbled upon your show a couple of months ago and I'm hooked. It's extremely fun to listen to you two. And through you, I can dream my way to all the fabulous haunted locations that I'll probably never get to visit myself living in Sweden. Well, that's true. It's just like most of the places we talk about in Australia and over in the UK and stuff like that. A lot of those are going to be hard for us to ever see, too. Doesn't uh, mean we won't, but yeah. Diane, ye of little faith. <laughs> you will be sitting next to me on the airplane, and I will have to ask you again, when were we probably never going to see this in our lifetime? <laughs> we also want to thank you guys for all of your well wishes and prayers that you've sent in Rafiki's direction. A lot of you probably recall that back in June, we had a scare with her, and we thought we were going to lose her back then. Well, because of all of your good thoughts and prayers, we managed to get two more months out of her, but we did finally send her across the Rainbow Bridge. So uh, we just want to thank you guys for that. I want to thank you for tuning into this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Emily Bonner. And thank you to Christina Bray for upping your sponsorship level. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.